Next week we're going to keep another, keep the psychology thing going. Next week we'll have another psychologist to throw at you who is going to talk about the, uh, the age-long uh, experience of doing a Camino or a Christian pilgrimage. This person has led uh, such uh, Caminos in, uh, uh, in Spain and in uh, uh, Italy in the past uh, four or five years. And uh, we'll, so we'll have uh, some more of that sort of thing next week. Now Alan's going to come and continue his discussion with us. Good morning, everybody. How are you all today? When we last left, uh, so I was talking to my mom last night, and uh, I said, yeah, I just want to pick your brain a little more about Aunt May. So I was talking about, if you weren't here last week, Susanna Mary Beersworth. Uh, her life, her conversion, uh, and uh, her mysticism as a Catholic, and she was called the White Piece of Dove. And I was talking to Mom about anything else that you know, she could share that I could tell, teach you all about. She's, you're teaching a bunch of Protestants about Aunt May. <laughs> Mom, you were Protestant when you met her. Yeah, I know. She scared me to death. <laughs> she told me a story that when right before Mom got baptized uh, as a Catholic. And this is right before my father went over to Germany right after the Second World War. Uh, she was over at Aunt May's house with my, with my grandparents and my dad. And she was sitting in the couch with Aunt May talking to her, and Aunt May held, held her hand. And she was telling my mom about her conversion experience, which was, and I'll share that with you in a few minutes. And my mother said it scared her so bad she wasn't sure she wanted to become a Catholic after that, <laughs> uh, because Aunt May experienced uh, visions and that sort of thing. Um, I, I told Paul, uh, I think it was inquired, that I read an article, I started doing some more searching, you know, Google is remarkable. I, uh, in fact, I went to a seminar a couple weeks ago on uh, the aging brain, which I thought was particularly relevant. And, uh, <laughs> and this, this doc from uh, Texas was teaching it, and, and every time he says, if you want to know more about this subject, go to the, the seat of all knowledge in the world, Google. So uh, that's what I do. And I Googled May again, and I found an article. So what? As well as misinformation. Well, you got that. <laughs> I Googled and I found a, an article from 1952 from the Catholic Herald from Bal in Baltimore. And she was not without controversy on May. In fact, the article tries to uh, really discount completely her, all of her uh, mystical experiences. And there was, a, it was an editorial in the Catholic Herald about why the church had validated her experiences. And they felt, the, the author of this article felt that the church should, should not have done that. So I, I talked to my mom last night and I said, well, what was the church's position on May as she died? Uh, Aunt May died when I was uh, nine years old, and um, I thought I was ten, but I remember it was second grade. So um, I asked, what was the church's support for her? Because prior to that time, her um, spiritual instructor was uh, a, a priest that was the president of the Loyola College in Baltimore. And when he became ill, um, the subsequent president of the university didn't have a lot of contact with her. And in fact, a couple times during her course of her life as a mystic, the church, actually her confessor at one point asked her to stop uh, any pronunciations or pronouncements rather of, of her faith, to stop all her guided drawings, uh, because this, this particular confessor felt it was not uh, a good uh, reflection on the Catholic Church. So she did stop for several years, so there was some controversy within in the denomination. Uh, apparently he did, um, and I'll share a little bit why, in a minute why, backed off of that position and, and again suggested she begin her guided imagery uh, because, well, in fact, I'll share it now. One of her drawings, one of her first drawings is, is guided imagery. And now, remember, remember from last time, when Aunt May would begin her, her guided uh, 
drawings, um, she felt that what happened to her, her arms were guided. She did not uh, have any control over where her arms went. In fact, she would paint with both hands, which is a lot, particularly when you're blind. Um, and she, was, she had vision when she started her process, but she lost her vision. Um, in fact, I remember kidding my grandfather, which he probably didn't appreciate, but he was their ophthalmologist. And I said, well, you're that good. Why did she go blind? <laughs> <laughs> I won't tell you what he shared with me in terms of But he became her benefactor. Uh, but anyway, he, she would literally draw with both hands. And one of her initial drawings, and she remember, this is before she became a Catholic. She didn't convert until she was 52 years of age. Because she kept fighting the, the, her urge to convert. Um, she was an Anglican, as I showed last time, Episcopalian when she came to the United States. So um, one of her initial drawings was of a, a pontiff that, that was that was going that she said had died. Well, it was Pope uh, Gregory the Fifteenth, um, Pope Benedict, I'm sorry, Fifteenth, and he had not died yet. So he, they were a little concerned that she was predicting his death. He died 45 days later. Uh, in the picture that she drew, in the painting that she drew, there was a, uh, another prelate, a cardinal, standing right next to him. And she pointed out and she said that the, me the message I've gotten from God is that he will be the successor uh, to St. Peter. And it turned out that was indeed the next pope, and it was Pope Pius XI. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, this is before she did not even know who the popes were uh, because she was not a Catholic at the time. So she had, that's when the, the confessor felt that when that became public, that perhaps she, in his opinion, in the church's opinion, had a, a divine gift that could actually uh, see things that, that were uh, germane not only in the Catholic Church, but to history as well, including predictions of World War II, uh, the primary combatants, uh, what would happen to the Catholic Church during that time, what would happen to Germany, in the United States, and a lot of her drawings subsequent to that were actually, um, have been, as I mentioned last time, sequestered in a convent in Baltimore. Um, I'm going to read, I'm taking you through a lot of her life today because it's, it's an interesting read. And I was talking to Marcia, my wife, last night about it, and this is a decidedly Catholic version uh, because the, the, and the, the person that wrote this is, is a doctor, so he was a, a priest, but also a, a PhD, uh, Pasco Parente, great uh, Italian name. And Father Parente, um, I'm sitting here, I think it was the time he died, you know, his, his take on this whole thing is that you know, there was a, a conspiracy by the devil to keep her from the Catholic faith. Now remember, if you go back uh, in the Catholic Church several decades, uh, even up to a point when I was very young, the Catholic Church uh, felt this is the one true Catholic Church. In fact, the decree, they, they do that nice decree and said that. The belief at the time, as I shared last time, was that if you, if you were not Catholic, you, you were not going to go to heaven. And I, I mentioned what my, what my first grade nun said about a bunch of men coming up with that rule. Um, so, but, but that was the faith that, that she was going to be converted into, and indeed, she felt uh, that was one of the reasons she did not want to become a Catholic, because she felt it was way too restrictive. But the more she prayed, and the more she thought, and the more she experienced um, what I'll share in a few minutes inside the Basilica in, in Baltimore, the more she became convinced that, that indeed, that was something that she felt uh, strong, strongly led to do, but she did not do it until she was, uh, again, 52 years of age. She, she would participate in novenas, and if, has anybody here ever been to a Catholic novena? It's an, uh, an odd kind of short prayer service that Catholics have. It's very, very spiritual, um, very mystical, and, and, and that's part of the old Catholic faith that, uh, that it was, you know, there's a lot of, uh, of the Latin music, but a lot of very lovely music. The Aurelian Corpus that in fact, our choir will be singing on Good Friday uh, was very, very often done in the day. It's a beautiful piece by Mozart. 
And it was a very powerful series of, of short services, 15, 20 minutes, that was about it. And you go to a whole series of novenas for whatever particular reason. It might be a novena to St. Ignatius Loyola or a novena for poverty in the world, whatever it might be. She went to novenas all the time, uh, even though she was Episcopalian. <clears throat> and during uh, one of those times, she also decided she was going to come to church and, and go to Mass. She could not participate in the Mass in terms of receiving the Eucharist because she wasn't Catholic. But she nonetheless did go to church, and her and she had a particular church that she went to. So I'm going to read to you um, her first vision. And as, as a young Catholic, this, this absolutely blew my mind because I thought, you know, this, this is the way to go. Because I, you know, as much as I tried, I didn't get any visions after this. Um, I kept thinking every time I looked at the, at the crucifix, they remember Catholics having a, a crucifix uh, on the altar as opposed to a cross. The crucifix, of course, is a cross with Christ's body on it. And uh, I'm going to read, read this to her. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, she went to nine novenas in a row and she was feeling very sad because the novena series was going to end and uh, she was she was staying in the pew for quite a while, for hours at a time and she would pray and she, as she did so, she felt a strange feeling pass through her body, this is from her diary I felt as if I had received a strong electric current or something that brought fear and bewilderment at the same time yet also a great joy filled my soul I was amazed to find my, my finger straight, I'm made had a horrible arthritic hands, and at one point in, in the process of her conversions, uh, her hands uh, were straightened out with the exception of two fingers, and there's a reason behind that, but I'll also share that in a minute. Um, and, and so I'll talk about the, the actual vision that she occurred. The hand straightened out during one of, one of the times of her prayer in the church, except for the two fingers, and the reason the two fingers, as it turned out later, were not healed, uh, was, was she was told in a, in a time of prayer with, with the Lord and also with St. Ignatius Loyola that the two hand, two fingers that were remaining gnarled were as a constant reminder to her uh, of what the power of God could do because these were not prepared. And she made her living, remember I mentioned, not only in, in, uh, in cosmetology, as they call it now, but also as a massage therapist. In fact, um, she uh, did, a lot of physicians would refer their patients to her when they felt there was just really nothing they could do. So. They would, you know, refer her the patients to her. She had practice in her in her home with a partner, actually, and because they felt the massage therapy would be comforting, you know, it would make the person relax and feel better. In in many many situations uh, within her practice of massage therapy, um, what the book uh, talks about is is healings occur, where people who were treated for years and years for rheumatoid arthritis and other kinds of deformities would actually become healed after her massage therapy sessions. In fact, they would not go back to the doctors. That one doctor said he was never going to refer anybody to her again because all his patients got well. <laughs> <laughs> he said it in a, in a joking fashion, but he, did never, he never did return. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she was, she was in the Baltimore Cathedral where she spent a lot of her time in prayer. So I, I will talk in that, and just read again from her diary as to exactly what she, what she says occurred to her. Um, very soon after this, she's again praying in the church, as she did virtually every day. I was blessed by a vision of Christ while in the cathedral. Our Lord came to me blessed and blessed me with his, his own dear hands. The pressure of his gentle yet firm touch remained on my head for months. I was kneeling very deep in prayer, encouraging our Lord with all the strength of my heart and soul to make himself known to me, to come to me and bless me if he were really in that tabernacle. Now, she's a Protestant looking at the tabernacle. In the Catholic Church, the tabernacle of uh, that's where the host is, okay? Uh, and the host, again, is in the Catholic Church, they believe in transubstantiation, where the, the, the host and the wine literally become the body and blood of Christ. 
And the, the host, therefore, because of the sanctity, is housed in the tabernacle. If you've been in the Catholic Church, you know some people come in, they genuflect. Uh, that is because the presence of Christ is there in that church, in that tabernacle. Uh, and so the host, any leftover host, mass, whatever, are kept in the tabernacle. And that's what she was, was focusing on at that time. And she wanted to see if God, if Christ really was in the tabernacle. A strange feeling came over me. My eyes became fixed on the altar. I saw what I thought was smoke coming up from the back of the tabernacle. I was surprised and a great feeling of fear came over me. I thought something was on fire behind the altar. I wanted to go and see uh, and then make it known, but I found I could not move. I was paralyzed. I felt powerless. Over me came a feeling that cannot be described. The smoke now developed into a thick rolling cloud. At first, the color was sort of gray. The clouds rolling from the center outward towards the church, towards the pew. Right in the center, I saw rising from the tabernacle a small white speck. At first it looked like an egg, only a little more round. All at once the host, for now I know that it is a host, began to get larger as it ascended high above the altar. As I looked, I could feel myself praying, O God, my heavenly Father, make thyself known to me. In the name of Jesus, give me the power to see. Make me believe, connect with me with thy Holy Spirit. O God, I want to know you, to love you, and to do things for you. Only show me, make me understand. I became lost in prayer, and the clouds became to change, to take on the color, always rolling from the center. I could now see nothing but the rolling clouds with the brilliant, bright host in the center. The host kept increasing in size until it was the size of a man's head. I could not take my eyes away. I was held as if in a vice. Little by little, the host turned into the beautiful face of Christ. As he came out of the tabernacle, the surroundings became beyond my powers to describe. All around was a fiery gold beyond description. He became full in size, his gown snow white, his eyes, eyes seemed to be looking directly into mine. Oh, the beauty, the love, and the longing, the joy and the sorrow that filled my soul as I looked into those forgiving eyes. He did not seem to walk or to glide, he just came. I was kneeling in the center of the church at this point. He came close to me. I began to tremble as if I had uh, the shakes, the convulsions. My head was forced down. And for the first time in my life, these words came to me. They came from my lips, from my heart and my soul. My Lord and my God. Um, that, by the way, is a common phrase that, that for years Catholics said when the host was raised during the course of the, um, the consecration. Uh, the priest uh, phrase, or in fact, the wording for the Eucharistic prayer is identical to what we do here. Uh, and the only difference is at that, that point of the consecration when Mike says, uh, this is my body, um, and... In the Catholic Church, the priest actually breathes that onto the host and then raises it up at that moment the host is consecrated. And most Catholics at the time, particularly this a phrase, a very common phrase that you said was, my Lord and my God. Now the irony here is that when you said that, when I was a child now, this is no longer true, but when you said it, it took 300 some odd days off your time in purgatory. Hmm. <laughs> so you know what I did. Uh, I could spit that phrase out my head. I was banking time. Um, my dad said, but don't you go to the bank of heaven. Um, but anyway, that was a very common phrase that was said back then. I then felt his powerful, gentle, loving hands placed on my head. He pressed with a gentle, firm weight that went through my very soul. My life, my life passed before my eyes like a flash. There is nothing in my life that did not stand out clear before my eyes. Each sin seemed to stand out clear and then fade as it washed out of existence. Can you imagine the experience of seeing every sin you've ever committed? Mm -hmm. 
um, and, and how horrible that must be. Uh, but then she talks about, it, and we talk about here, our Lord's grace and just wiping that all away for no reason, just because he loves us. Um, tremendous. This continued until all have faded as if they had never existed. I seem to pass through the cleansing fire into a world of snowy whiteness. I do not know how long I was held there, nor could I describe in detail the wonderful sight, the great glory of this heavenly vision. For months after, I felt those loving hands on my head both night and day. I can feel them now, several years later, as I write this. While kneeling there, the trembling ceased and the great calm came over me. For I knew in my heart and soul that I had indeed been truly blessed by the living Christ. Yes, he is truly present. He is the living God, our daily food, life of our soul, the real body and blood of Christ. After a while, I was free. I looked up and fully expected to see Christ standing near me because I could still feel his hands upon my head, but I could not see him. The church looked just as it had, just as the same as it had before my vision. Yet the church was the same, but I was never, I was not the same. I knew in my heart that I was now in the hands of God. Um, when she would tell these stories to me, and, and I remember uh, checking my own memory, because you know, when you're nine years old, you, you can come up with all kinds of memories. Um, the way she shared the stories was so um, free of any bravado. She was the only <coughs> person I ever recall meeting. Uh, very, very kind. When I met her, she was totally blind. Um, but I asked my mom, I said, did she really talk to us about having breakfast with the Holy Family? I think I shared that with you last time. She says, oh, yes. Um, my mother went over and ate breakfast with her uh, before my brother, when she was pregnant with my older brother when dad was in Germany, uh, quite often. And at that point, Mae was blind. And Mae would say, I'm sorry I'm a little behind because I've already had breakfast with, her, with the Holy Family. And the way she would say it to you was, uh, obviously the child was scared the bejeebies out of you. Uh, but, you know, you really had a sense that this was something that she was saying with complete belief. Uh, there was no sense of... Um, narcissism, no sense of arrogance, um, there was no sense of her wanting any secondary gain. In fact, uh, her life of mysticism ended up bankrupting her. She lost everything. Uh, she did end up getting, getting into a home, a, a small bungalow, um, and a woman came to live with her named Mary, but she could not afford the mortgage. Uh, and she was getting ready, to, and what and mom was telling me last night, she said, now what May would do, she would she knew that she had she couldn't make a living because she was older elder now blind, and she she uh, had no way to support herself and she would just pray, and somehow mom said that it happened every single time somebody would bring money, uh, and the last thing was somebody brought her four thousand dollars to pay off her mortgage, so she lived you know uh, mortgage free in, until her death. My grandfather supported her a great deal. Uh, he paid, and I didn't know this until last night. <clears throat> you know, he was and I did Mozart very close to my grandfather. He was a wonderful guy. Uh, a lot of his practice was pro bono. Very rich practice, a lot of senators, congressmen, uh, cabinet officers, both professional baseball teams, and the wonderful Redskins uh, were his patients. But uh, he did a lot of pro bono work. He just felt very strong about doing a lot of work. And he did uh, all, all her treatment pro bono, even though apparently it didn't work. Um, but he provided her groceries, he gave her money to live on. He fixed the house, but he never told my parents about it because he was very private about his money. Uh, they both were. My grandmother was, uh, was Catholic, but she was a Quaker before that. He was very conservative. You don't talk about yourself and what you're doing. But he took care of Aunt May until she died. So I asked my mom, I said, my grandfather was a brilliant man, um, finished med school when he was 19, started his practice when he was 20. Um, he used to get, uh, he was a very small guy when he, because he was, I think he was finished high school by the time he was 13 or 12 or 13. 
and he used to get beat up a lot. So what he did was to stop from getting beat up, he would do all the big football players' um, homework. And that's what he protected him. It was a fine thing to do, Al. He was a great idea. <laughs> but he was a very intellectual man. He never, I don't remember him talking to me about, ever about his faith, um, but he was always very intellectually uh, wanting to be challenged and looked at things very scientifically. So I asked Mom, I said, did he really believe on maybe this And because I kind of had a gut feeling that he didn't, just based on some things he had said to me later in life, not about her, but just, you know, about. <laughs> church and faith and things, you said, yeah, he believed 100%. I said, did you find that odd, knowing that his, you know, his background, that kind of choose? Yeah, but he, you could tell that he believed it 100%. Uh, and because of the way she was, in terms of her um, total lack of arrogance and that sort of thing. So, um, the church found out about her. This is, again, prior to her being, being converted. And so they began to do some experiments. Uh, there were some, a, a set of doctors in New York City that did a lot of research on spiritism, they called it back then, what we now call psychics, that kind of thing. And that's what they thought, you know, that, that her track was. And the, pur the purpose of the experiments, they were both physiological and psychiatric, uh, was to assess was there any secondary gain being involved, was there any what we call test fate kind of stuff, uh, was there any kind of physiological things, any manipulation she was doing. And so they began to test her, uh, and they tested her quite often. She would go to New York City. Uh, in fact, at some, one point, the church actually supported this, even prior to her being uh, converted, because she was coming to the church all the time. I guess they were concerned about what she was going to tell folks. Uh, she'd also gotten a lot of press in the Baltimore Sun at the time as well about her paintings, her guided paintings. She started to get pretty famous, so the church started doing some experiments. And it was interesting, the more the experiments per the book uh, began to indicate that um, there was no physiological uh, reason that she could do what she was doing, uh, the church ordered a stop to all the experiments. Because it ran, again, there was a great deal of skepticism, you know, as I shared last time, about Catholic Church perception of, or, or dealing with saints and, and mysticism and that sort of thing. Um, but she continued, as the testing all proved uh, negative. Um, so the, the, the doctors and, that were evaluating her, the scientists, as it says in the book, all felt that she was, was a valid uh, mystic. But she continued her drawing, and you know, it's interesting that her drawings became more and more sophisticated. Uh, and, and Mom was saying last night she couldn't understand how she could paint. Because I remember I mentioned last time, almost all of her paintings had faces in them. Uh, a lot of faces. And very, very small faces. I mean, just minute. And there's a lot of uh, her pictures in the book. And they look very crude, uh, frankly. That was, I was surprised at how crude they were. As they developed and as she developed, even after blindness, they became more and more beautiful. Uh, and in fact, an art critic in Baltimore went absolutely nuts about them when they saw them because they thought that they'd never seen anybody use colors the way she had or brush strokes the way she had, not knowing that she was doing it with both hands. Um, but the more she began to do this, the more the more scatological her paintings became, the more they began to predict the future. And that's one supposition we have as a family as to why nobody's allowed to see the, the drawings. Um, or her <coughs> diaries anymore. They're in that convent in Baltimore. But that my father, who's kind of a history book, well, actually, he was a history major in college, uh, really was fascinated by her drawings because very often he saw faces in her drawings that he knew, he recognized from history. Um, she did one apparently of purgatory. Remember, Catholics believe in purgatory, which is a a holding pen, if you will. <laughs> Ecclesiastic holding pen. Um, where you kind of uh, you, you kind of do penance for our sins on earth prior to admission into heaven. Now, obviously, as, as Methodists, we don't we don't have the same belief. 
but she believed firmly in purgatory and um, did a painting of purgatory, and it was apparently beautiful. I never saw it. Uh, but I remember it was there at her house when we came there, so I was going to was going to walk over and take a look at it, and my dad would not let us do that. And you know, he didn't tell us for years why. I finally said, why would you let us, this is years later, why didn't you let tell us about, why couldn't we see the picture? Because it says, because there are faces on that picture you did not have a need to know about. Now, I remember my dad worked for the CIA, he loved that phrase. Um, <laughs> but apparently there's a lot of historical figures that, for her drawing, were still in purgatory. I still, you know, I'm, I'm one of these kind of guys, okay, dad, it was like, like George Washington. <laughs> talking biggies? <laughs> question at all. Um, she did have uh, periods of rapture where she actually felt that she, it's, it's called the flight of rapture, where she actually felt herself leave her body. And um, I'm going to read one example of that to you right now. And this is the stuff I thought was pretty neat as a kid. Um, the impression of her soul leaving her body and traveling distant places occurred uh, very often in her diary. It is nothing else but what mystic writers call the rapture of flight or the spirit of flight. What is unique, however, is the fact that while thus absorbed and wrapped in ecstasy, her hands would draw marvelous pictures of her visions without any guidance from her eyes, which remained shut all during the time that she was painting. In these marvelous flights of the spirit, she is then carried to, often to Rome, to St. Peter's Basilica, the Vatican, Purgatory, Heaven, uh, and at one point, Hell. Uh, she didn't get there. What she did was she was went to, she was given the, the opportunity to, to see the vision of heaven. And Mike talked about that last week in his sermon, you know, which I thought was interesting. Uh, and then she was cast down to hell. And uh, the words that she used, she, she was panicking as she was traveling towards hell. And she, the words she screamed out was, "My Lord and my God," and that brought her back up. Uh, so she was. So she felt she'd had the vision of heaven. She was pretty excited about going there. I asked mom last night, but I remember as a child, her being pretty excited about dying. She was, like, she was, well, she was thrilled. Just was so happy she broke her hip and could not wake you die. Uh, and I remember now that, that she died uh, when my, my uh, mom's dad died uh, around the same time. Um, okay, so anyway, she had these flights of spirit, uh, and apparently quite often for her, which again is not unusual. Um, I shared last time, I was going to make sure I'm going to find where I can that, that many, many times the mystics and saints, the Catholic Church reports, and people report that see them, they call it a, a sacred odor. Where is that? Um, ah, yeah. This kind of thing. Yeah. So I, I read the book, you know, a couple times. Every time I read it, I pick up some more stuff. But she, um, and I mentioned last time about the, the, the odor and also the stigmata. And I have forgotten that Aunt May had experienced um, the stigmata, which I have forgotten about in, in, in a sense, I'm sure that we um, this is This is what happened to her one, one morning. Well, I was reading the Bible this morning about 9.30, and again, as I said last time, that her prayer life was very disciplined. I mean, every single day, her, most of her day was spent praying. She didn't, she prayed, then she eat, then she prayed all day, eat, pray, pray, pray. That's all she did. And she prayed for all kinds of souls, all kinds of people, uh, and that sort of thing. So uh, one morning while she was reading her Bible at 9.30, I noticed the most wonderful smell of incense, most delicate was the perfume. And this is in her diary. This is a woman, by the way, who did not, when she was, she was educated in first grade, and that was it. She learned her alphabet, and she could count to 20. But when you read the diary, because she spoke, did not speak like this when she spoke to you. I mean, it was not, it was a very uneducated, that mom and I were talking last night about it, 
that you know she spoke like my my grandfather did my my mom's dad who's a very uneducated uh, laborer and uh, she said that you know she was very simple in her communication except when she wrote well read okay so i said the bible um one cannot help connecting it with roses that's the smell of incense yet far more wonderful than any earthly roses the room looked almost as if i had been burning incense uh, i have often noticed early in the mornings and at the close of the day this same perfume but never as strong as it has been this morning I was wondering if I did really smell a wonderful incense or it was just my imagination because I was thinking of the little flower of Jesus, uh, St. Teresa, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, that's why I thought I was smelling it. At this time, Mary, the woman who lives with me, came into the room to dust, and she said, what an incredible smell. Just what does it smell? And I said to her, just what does it smell like to you? She said, it smells like incense, only more delicate and perfumed like roses, and the room is full of it, and what is it? I said, I too smelled very strong, but I was just wondering whether it was my imagination. And Mary said to her, imagination, nothing, I smelled as well. A little later, this is Mary, this is written in, in uh, 1948, the book was published, it was actually published in 50. Um, she said, a little, a little later, the colored elevator girl named, uh, asked Mary, that was the woman who lived with Aunt May, what kind of incense I burned? She said she had never smelled anything so good before, and that it filled the building. She said, um, Madam you know, uh, Rearsworth burns it every day around 6 o'clock, doesn't she? This was always the time say, uh, that Susanna Mary's morning prayer occurred. So she apparently did have some of the, um, uh, the, the aura or the odor that they, they often uh, say that mystics do. She also experienced, and I'm going to read this one too, and I'm watching my time. What time do I go to, folks? Let's keep it straight. Wire. Wire. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Ash, Ash, yeah. Phil Michael, I'm not doing chairs and stuff. <laughs> During Holy Week, um, this was later on in her life. Um, after, I'm sorry, this was later in her life, but long before uh, my grandfather, in 1926. Um, she began during Holy Week to experience some of the physical symptoms that Christ experienced uh, in, in his passion. And um, she said, I will now try to, to, with the great help of the divine power of God, to offer up my sincere thanks to him for allowing me this close union with him um, because she felt that I was connected with her. Um, now I'll read what she says happened to her physiologically. Um, I wonder what the, the, the physical research officers, Dr. William F. Prince, his and the guys who your researcher, would call these manifestations of passion week of our Lord. Would they say that my skin, which is turned reddish brown, uh, is because I've been exposed to the hot sun? Would they call this my subconscious mind or uh, a, some type of disorder? <coughs> if so, how would they account for the palms of my hand being drawn in the center to such an extent that one can feel by placing a finger and thumb over the place uh, of their impressions, just as if they were a real hole? And she said it was up in here, not, not here as opposed to the actual stigmata. Uh, just as there were really a hole in my palm. Of course, there was really no hole in my palm, but the center of the palm was drawn just as if there were, there were one. The hole seemed to disappear Easter Sunday, but the imprint is still there and is now becoming very faint. Um, that surprised me. I, I did not recall that she'd actually experienced part of the stigmata, because uh, she never talked to about it, about it with us. Um, she began to get very frustrated with the Catholic Church um, because they, they kept holding her back. And I, I have not been able to get a good sense from my mom, or, and my dad's not quite able to, to, uh, to remember those years, uh, sadly, but uh, to figure out why the church was pulling back on her. Again, the family theory, 
is because you know her predictions were coming true um, about World War II, death of certain individuals um, who came to power in certain parts of the world, and the church felt and uh, was always very very careful about what they said in, in that regard because they were obviously ostracized significantly. Um, there was one cure that was attributed to her, one miracle. And uh, this is a miracle of a woman. I'll read it. I'll, I'll probably close with this with some comments. Um, a woman came to see her and said, for over 10 years, I've had a growth in my abdomen that was very large and gave me much trouble. One doctor told me that I had a tumor, and a doctor said he could not tell me until he opened it. Surgeon. Um, <laughs> he told me to come to the hospital at once. And uh, they even got a bed ready for me, but somehow I did not go. And although he told me that I could not live three years, to tell the truth, I did hide from the man. A little after this time, I came to work for Madame Susanna Mary. I became much interested in her spiritual work with regard to drawings, etc. One day, I was standing at her drawing table. She was reading from the Bible. At the same time, her right hand was drawing the face of Christ. Very gently, her right hand was lifted up. She leaned over the table. Her eyes were now closed. Very gently, she touched my, my stomach. At the same time, she prayed aloud, but I don't remember the words. But she told me she thought that God was removing the growth from my stomach. And strange to say, from that time until now, I've had no return. The swelling disappeared. And, uh, before that, I was a sight to behold, and now I'm no longer. So according to this woman, uh, now this, there's no verification from the church or anybody else on this, but this is from, from Aunt May's diary. Um, what I found in, in reading the book, and even this morning, that particularly when she describes her connections with Christ, um, you know, it, it's an incredibly emotional experience for her, and it was exhausting for her. And I felt, you know, not only because she was an aunt by association in her family, but even remember as a child, my, my brief encounters with her, um, her ability to, to connect with all kinds of people, um, in a very loving way was, was such that I've never experienced since then. Uh, and I've met some very, very holy people, uh, both in the monastic orders as well as outside of, of, the, of the Catholic Church. But I've never met anybody who was so gentle, um, hence her name, the White Piece of Dove, because that was what she was, was really known as. And it was interesting that the that whole family had this experience. One of our uh, big our family stories is that when she, I think I shared this last time, when she picked up my oldest brother, older brother, he's the oldest in the family, that she picked him up and, and she said, I have got something, this one is going to be very special. So we figured, he's going to be a pope. I mean, <laughs> where, where do we go from there? Uh, well, apparently, um, he, and Rob did go into the order of uh, Oblates of St. Francis of Sales. Uh, Rob left the Oblates of St. Francis of Sales and moved to Haight-Ashbury. Um, <laughs> to, uh, and, and to go to grad school, and, and, and Rob's not gay, but to, he uh, became residential, he gave apartment complex to, to work his way to grad school. My dad thought it was just, just, just freaking out, and my dad, I thought, maybe he believed in God. Um, so I figured, hey, this is can't, can't, can't do anything but help me. But my brother is truly one of the most um, remarkable men I've ever met in my life. Uh, I think she's right. He's in my, I was talking to my sister last night about it. And we all feel he's very special in a lot of different ways. I mean, he really, really is. But um, anyway, a long, long story short, um, that is a, a short story of a Catholic mystic. Uh, again, even within her own denomination, skeptics. Um, my family chooses to believe because of our knowledge of her and our interface with her. Um, there was a part of the book, and I, and I, I don't have time to read it right now. Remember I shared with you that when she spoke, uh, when she read the Gospels or spoke the Gospels, her voice changed. And there was uh, an account of, 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 of a doctor in the room when she did that. 
and he would force the same thing that I did the week that I personally experienced was that her, her voice would change and it wasn't a woman talking as a man, it was a rich, beautiful, baritone voice of a man. So when she talked, everything changed. When she spoke only the words of Christ, uh, her voice would change. And that, that, that'll scare you, believe me. It still does. It still freaks me out. Um, I've got about five minutes. Any, any questions you all have for me about all this? Can we get the book? The book is available, Amazon.com. Uh, I was stunned because I've, I've got one of the original copies. Uh, it's all over the internet. Um, and you can get it for like the buck. And some of them are, mm -hmm. there's some rare book collectors apparently charge you more. I don't know why. Uh, it's pretty cheap. It's Susanna Mary Beardsworth, Her Life, Conversion, Mysticism, and the author is uh, Pascal Parente, P A R E N T E. And he was a Catholic priest that wrote books uh, about mystics. And, any other questions? The last name is Parente. Oh, her last name? Or her. her uh, Beardsworth, B B A R D. S-W-O-R-T-H. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to be with you all to share. Well, now, are there any mystics today who are mystics in waiting to replace her? There, um, in fact, <laughs> there, are, there are several mystics out and about. Um, uh, even when Aunt May was, was there, uh, there were three or four mystics. Uh, in fact, one of them, uh, Teresa Neumann, um, became a saint and was very familiar with May. She and May knew each other well. Um, so there's always a few uh, about it. I'm not familiar. The most contemporary one was Thomas Merton the Monk in, in um, uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Um, he died very young, and not Tommy Depp on a mission to uh, Bangkok, I don't know who was. But he was probably the most contemporary one that I've been aware of uh, because I've read some of his readings when I was a sociology major in undergrad because he wrote a lot of stuff. So that's the latest one that I'm aware of. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Yes, have, have uh, any uh, photographs been made of the uh, paintings? There are several in the book. Oh, several yeah. in the book. And okay. what struck me was how crude they were. Yeah. Uh, but again, this is a woman who could not draw a straight line for her. But as she uh, as she progressed in, in her faith journey and her mysticism, the paintings became more and more elaborate and more beautiful. I remember seeing them, because they're only black and white here, but I remember seeing them, um, and she had, an, and I don't know how she did it, and that's what the artists were saying. <clears throat> she would paint, and somehow it was against a totally black background. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how she did that. Um, but the paintings I saw at her house, because she had them out, I mean, she had easels out and stuff, and drawing paper and stuff, were absolutely incredible. Yes. I want to ask you a quick question. Sure. We missed last week. Mm -hmm. Did you grow up in Baltimore? I grew up in uh, Washington, D.C. area. Okay, do you have a minute after? Tom's family is from Baltimore. Oh, okay. It's the Erdman, Erdman Avenue, Erdman Lumber. Ah, okay. Yeah, she lived there until 19, I think she left Baltimore in, I think it was 46, I think. Well, she moved from there. that's a big Catholic family in Baltimore. Okay. Yeah, they, uh, they may, well, uh, they may have heard of her, I don't know, it's hard to say. Um, but she left there and then moved to Washington, D.C. Was, that's how she met my grandfather. Two stories how she met him. One, my mom, my mom says that a um, FBI agent, um, friend of my grandfather, introduced him. I don't know what that's about. Um, the other story my grandfather told me is that he, he walked out of his office one day and the waiting room was full of patients and she was sitting there and he said, May, come on in. He never met her in his life. He said, I said, how did you know her name? He goes, I have no idea. Grandfather's character. That's the damnest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> 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 but he said from that day forward, he started taking care of her. He never been before. I have a Catholic question. Yeah. Do Catholics
believe that they can pray to God from the heart, or do they only do rope prayers from the nipple and with the prayer Although a lot of the prayers, for example, my mother is a, a, a um, rosary uh, addict. She does two or three a day. Um, when my mom prays, it's cool. It's powerful to watch. Um, my mom was diagnosed last year with stage four cancer, lung cancer. She did rosaries after rosaries. She is cancer free, totally. Yeah, they had a, a hormonal diagnosis. That's part of the mistake that made it. Uh, but she is cancer free. I mean, she they gave her roots. Uh, but she and, and my mother now again being a Baptist, she was raised Baptist. Uh, she Catholics pray from the heart. I mean, it's, they do have rope. Um, it's kind of a chant thing also that kind of helps the most. But it's very powerful from the heart. Yeah. On a personal note, tell us about your boys. Ah, God bless them. Um, my <laughs> oldest son Jake's at NYU um, in international, uh, getting his master's in international affairs, and getting two papers published this month. I'm proud of them. Uh, one's on the. Um, uh, Proposed peacekeeping in Libya. The other one's a paper he did on the assessment of the troop deployment strategy in Afghanistan, which is fascinating because he gets all this stuff. Apparently, I don't know where he gets stuff. Um, he's being recruited by the CIA and some other folks to go to work for them. Uh, I asked him today, I said, what, What's the age you saying? He loved it. He says, You don't have a need to know. My younger son, Patrick, who was only nine months younger, he's at the University of Georgia grad school. He's going to be a psychologist. Yeah. And he's uh, he's having a blast. He's, he's getting some really serious cases. Your dad, this is sweet. <laughs> <laughs> so they're both healthy, and, and God has blessed us beyond measure. So uh, thank you for asking. But well, I guess I better go down and get get ready to sign. Bless you all. After we close the prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we try to understand the majesty and the mystery of you, and the incredible power of your love for us. But we really cannot. We cannot know if mysticism is real or contrived or product of our own pathologies. But Lord, we know in our hearts beyond a doubt that your love for us is absolutely immeasurable, that you bless us beyond belief, and that you care for us more than we could ever care for each other. I ask that you bless this group here, Lord, this wonderful Sunday school class who means so much to this church and to me. I ask that you bless all in this church and in all churches throughout the world and those that are unchurched. Bring them closer to you so that in some way we may begin to touch the experience of people like Susanna Mary Beardsworth. And I ask that you bring all of us back here again next week safely and ask all of this, of course, in the name of our wonderful, precious Lord. Amen. Amen.